Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Today on Inside Politics, honoring the fallen. Right now, President Biden is in Dover, Delaware, to attend the dignified transfer of three U.S. soldiers killed last weekend in Jordan and to meet with families as their loved ones' remains return to U.S. soil. Plus, 353,000 jobs added. The first employment report of 2024 is out, and it's much stronger than anybody expected. This, as new exclusive CNN polling shows, that voters are giving President Biden slightly more credit for economic gains and a jumbled mess. That's how a GOP source is describing House Republicans attempt to impeach President Biden. We're going to bring you new reporting on how top members are finally admitting it's probably not going to happen. I'm Dana Bash. Let's go behind the headlines and inside politics. We start with the most solemn duty of an American president. Joe Biden is in Delaware at Dover Air Force Base to witness the dignified transfer of three U.S. soldiers killed in Jordan. 24-year-old Sergeant Kennedy Sanders was known to her parents as Munchkin. They say she dove into everything headfirst. 23-year-old Sergeant Brianna Moffat, her sister, says she'd talk to a stranger on the street and have them smiling and laughing within minutes and 46-year-old Sergeant William Jerome Rivers. He's remembered as quiet, genuine, and a huge Philly sports fan. These brave Americans were all from Georgia. CNN's Arlette Signs is at the White House. Uh, Arlette, you've covered President Biden for some time. Uh, you understand how solemn this is for any president, but particularly for him. Yeah, Dan, it really is the most somber duty a president has as commander in chief. And President Biden will experience this now for the second time as he is on hand for a dignified transfer of those three U.S. service members who were killed in Jordan. Now, the president has just arrived at Dover Air Force Base on Air Force One. He is accompanied by his wife, First Lady Jill Biden. And first up on their schedule is a meeting, private meetings with the families of those service members. Uh, the schedule says he has a little over an hour to meet with them. This will give him a chance to hear directly personal stories about their loved ones and to hear their concerns as well. The president spoke with the three families on Tuesday, and the White House said that in those conversations, he gauged their feelings about having him attend the dignified transfer. All three families agreed that they did want the president there. That Those are the families of Sergeant William Rivers and also two Army specialists who are posthumously promoted to the rank of sergeant, Kennedy Sanders and Brianna Moffitt. And we really got a very rare uh, video showing a moment where President Biden spoke uh, with the family of Kennedy Sanders and personally delivered the news where he said that they were posthumously promoting her to sergeant. Take a listen. By the way, we're promoting her posthumously to sergeant. Oh, wow. That is the best news I've heard today. Thank you so much. You don't know how much that means to us. Oh, well, I tell you what, it means a lot to, a lot to me. Uh, my son spent a year in Iraq, that's how I lost him, and uh, 
I, uh, you know, 1%, 1% of all these kids are the ones that, uh, take care of 99% of us. And so you'll see there the Air Force One has arrived at Dover Air Force Base. We anticipate President Biden and the First Lady walking off any moment. As you heard in that clip, the president talked about his own experience with loss. That is something he has often turned to in these types of meetings. His own son, Bo Biden, had served in Iraq in the uh, Delaware National Guard for about a year. And later when he returned, he came down with brain cancer. The president has oftentimes talked about how he believes his son's exposure to burn pits while while he was serving in Iraq, uh, contributed to the brain cancer that Bo Biden eventually uh, succumbed to uh, back in 2015. Now, President Biden and the First Lady will have a chance to meet privately behind closed doors with these families. Those meetings are oftentimes raw with emotion. You'll remember back in uh, uh, 2021, uh, the president attended a dignified transfer for 13 service members who were killed in Afghanistan. And those meetings uh, that went on with the families at the time were very raw with emotion and anger from some, some very frustrated with the president's handling of the withdrawal in Afghanistan. So personally for President Biden, this will certainly be a very uh, moving moment. I will also note, in addition to that meeting with the families, then there will be the dignified transfer. And both Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and the Chairman of the Chiefs of Staff, C.Q. Brown, will also be on hand uh, for the dignified transfer. And it all comes as the U.S. is expected at some point to respond to this drone attack, which led to the death of these three U.S. service members. The president had told me on Tuesday that he has made a decision how he will respond. Uh, The officials have previewed that it could be multi-tiered, multi-phase. In this response, the question now is when exactly that will begin. But for the moment today, the president's focus will be on those families trying to comfort them in this moment as the remains of their three fallen service members uh, return back to U.S. soil. And Arlette, as you're speaking, we are watching uh, the president and the first lady who have just, as you mentioned, gotten off Air Force One. Uh, They are now at the airbase. He's about to get into his car. And what we expect uh, once he gets to uh, the area where he is going to greet the families, we're told that there is a quiet room at Dover Air Base where these um, conversations tend to happen. It, it, It is noteworthy that we haven't seen this has only happened, this is the second time Twice. since mm-hmm. Joe Biden right, has been president. And it's not something that happened very often before uh, 2009. Presidents didn't always attend the ritual. And we, the media, were only allowed to document this beginning in 2009. Yeah, and it really started when you started to see more and more troops coming back uh, around the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. But for a president, it really is the gravest duty that he has, having to uh, be on hand there, speak one-on-one with the families who are grieving and enduring such loss of their loved ones, and he will once again do that today. I will note that back when he was vice president, he actually did attend a dignified transfer and then had attempted to as he was a senator of Delaware, but had said that he was turned away at times from those uh, ceremonies. But certainly uh, it will be a very poignant moment for the president, especially one who has dealt with so much grief himself and so often has stepped into that role of comfort. Yeah, no question. And as we uh, see the president's motorcade go and as he begins to uh, embark on this uh, this journey, 
I want to talk to my panel here. And Gloria Borger, I'm going to start with you. You have covered Joe Biden for a very long time, right. uh, back when he was U.S. senator. I know you've spoken to him many times about the way that he approaches um, being a person who understands grief and interacts with people who are grieving. That was even before he was commander in chief. And now he really is at the moment acting as consoler in chief. Well, this is, you know, this is really his superpower. And this is something that has occurred over the years. He lost his wife and a young child just as he was elected to the Senate uh, in a car accident. And then, of course, losing Beau Biden uh, after Beau served. Uh, and I think that Biden believes that he can help people this way. I mean, this is somebody who tells people over and over again that there is a hole in your heart, as he puts it, a black hole that can never be replaced. But if you find a purpose in your life after, after loss, you can learn to live with it. But this is something that um, he feels he can really help. And that's why he does it. Yeah. And, and uh, as we talk about this, he wrote in a book that he uh, published in 2017, Promise Me Dad, A Year of Hope, Hardship and Purpose, about what happened with his son, Bo. I have found over the years that although it brought back my own vivid memories of sad times, my presence almost always brought some solace to people who have suffered sudden and unexpected loss. When I talk to people in mourning, they know I speak from experience. And he still carries Bo's rosary with him every single day mm. and will take it out on occasion. Yeah, it's, um, it's something he's uniquely qualified uh, to do as president. And I was thinking as Arlette referred to him, and we do this all the time, a consoler in chief mm -hmm. or comforter in chief. And we always take a president and we say blank in chief. Mm -hmm. But it is because of their role as commander in chief of the armed forces that we attach that label. And here, um, he has to combine those things. He has to be the commander in chief and the comforter in chief uh, all at the same time, given that these people uh, lost their lives in service to the country. And in listening to that phone call, which is just extraordinary it's to extraordinary. hear on the end, the family's end of that phone call. Um, and a, new, a local news crew was there at the time that they uh, received the call uh, from President Biden. And to hear him talk about it, I just, that, you know, 1% serves to protect and defend the 99% um, is such an important thing to keep in mind as we watch this sacrifice on display. Also important because they do so sometimes without the public support. You mentioned 2009 being mm -hmm. the first time the media is even really being able to show it. That makes a difference how people think about war uh, when they see how people are affected. Yeah, no, that's such a good point. And this, uh, this isn't happening in a vacuum. This is happening as the president is weighing, he says he's decided how to respond to uh, Iran or the Iran-backed militias that the U.S. believes is responsible for the death of these three individuals. And that's a broader com policy conversation, right, that you're trying to have at the same time that you have escalating tensions in the Middle East more broadly and a wing of your party that's disappointed in how you've handled some aspects of that. You would absolutely think that this is moments like this are on the minds of the people in the White House and the NSC, the State Department and Pentagon when making decisions and when they say they're trying to prevent a wider regional mm -hmm. conflict. Okay.
Everybody stand by. We're going to turn back to politics as we monitor what's happening in Delaware. A new CNN poll reveals what voters now think of Joe Biden and America's economy. And it shows Americans' deep pessimism about the economy might be easing up, even if only a little bit. Stay with us. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, I sit down with Giles Yeo. It is a problem of our brain influencing the hunger. So hunger is a brain scenario, even though the feeling of hunger comes from your stomach. It's a very new and provocative way of thinking about a condition that impacts more than 40% of Americans. But the thing is, this approach could have big consequences for the way that we treat obesity. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. The U.S. economy added a whopping 353,000 jobs in January for a stronger-than-expected start to this new year. Another sign of economic strength, the unemployment rate remained at 3.7 percent, making January the 24th month in a row that jobless rates have been lower than 4 percent. This comes as a new CNN poll finds that Americans' pessimism about the economy is beginning to ease ever so slightly. Joining me now at the Magic Wall to talk about this, to break it down, is David Chalian. Uh, let's start with the overall um, idea that political strategists, since we've been covering politics, have been look, have looked at and matters more than anything, which is how people feel about the direction of the country. Exactly. And so we asked that question, and we see that only 35% of Americans in our new poll say that things are going well. Now, I say only 35%, that's about a third, and it's a low number. Mm -hmm. But Dana, look, it is ticking up a bit. It was at 28% last fall. I mean, we weren't at 35% until the aftermath of the midterm elections in December of 22, and that was a blip. So that is a a bit of good news that maybe the country is turning the corner in perception, though still two-thirds do not believe things are going well. But I think this is instructive. Look at it broken by party. Mm. You see growth in positive perception across all Democrats, independents, Republicans. So yes, Democrats think more now that things are going well than did before, but it, you see an eight percentage point growth since the fall with independents and seven percentage points with Republicans. Yeah, right track, wrong track, that's yeah. it. Yeah. The economy, we just talked about the numbers today were just bonkers, really, really good. And the, the biggest challenge to date for the Biden campaign has been to transfer those data points to how people are feeling. Yeah. And I, we're not seeing it working just yet. I mean, you see a little, little bit. bit, a tiny bit, but this is within the margin of error. 55 percent, a majority of Americans say Biden's economic policies have worsened economic conditions. Only a quarter say they've improved conditions. 19 percent, no effect. So, yes, 58 percent said that in August. But again, that's margin of error. He's largely staying uh, even there with a majority of Americans saying that economic conditions have worsened under his watch. And take a look just overall of his approval ratings on a whole host of issues right there in the middle. Dana, 37% approval on the economy. He's at 
38% approval overall. The economy drives so much of how people perceive him. Where he overperforms his overall approval rating, protecting democracy and the situation in Ukraine, where he underperforms his overall approval rating, the Israel-Hamas war, and then immigration consistently his worst issue in the eyes of Americans, only 30% of the proof of the job he's doing on that issue. Which speaks to the uh, more hardline stance that he has taken really ever uh, yeah. in recent weeks. Okay, stand by because I want our viewers to hear some of what President Biden has been saying, even as recently as yesterday, about the economy on the campaign trail. Folks, look. We now have, in large part because of you and organized labor, the strongest economy in the whole damn world. We do. We do. In the whole world. Inflation's coming down. Jobs are growing. We created 800,000 manufacturing jobs. Remember they told us we were dead. Manufacturing is dead in America. China was going to eat our lunch. Well, guess what, man? We don't taste that good. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Uh, our excellent panel is back with us now. Gloria Borger, uh, what are your thoughts on some of the numbers that David just went through in our well, poll? Look, I think, uh, as you were saying, the jobs numbers today were astounding. Nobody expected it. Everybody's been predicting uh, a recession, and that has not occurred. The question that I have about our numbers, things are ticking up. A little bit. I think that would be an accurate way to describe it. Um, the question is, what does it take to turn a battleship around mm. so that uh, Americans start feeling the effects of an economy that's clearly improving? I mean, you know, interest rates are still high. It looks like the Fed's not going to do anything now. Mm -hmm. um, and they feel the groceries are still high, et cetera. Gas is coming down, but it's still high. So what will it take for Americans to say, you know what, we're on the right track? But there's always been this clash between the tools you have to actually address the economy, let's say the Fed, and what we feel in our pocketbooks, right? So the Fed looks around and says, stop buying houses. You're buying too many houses. This is ridiculous. That means high interest rates. Then everyone looks around and says, I can't buy a house, which was kind of the point, right? So these things like your rent, your home, those things are worth looking at because that's where people can't enjoy the gains they've made with their wages because they feel like they can't put them to work. Those in the White House also, when it comes to this issue, are still trying to figure out how to talk about some of these sprawling investments that they've had and actually have that translate to how it's impacting people's lives now. I was talking to uh, somebody in the White House recently who was saying, look, one thing you don't want to do is just talk about these good metrics of the economy and have it uh, be framed almost like a Harvard seminar mm -hmm. to the public. It took them a while to get there. Though. That's yeah, right. For a long That's time, right. Every time you talk to a White House person, they would say to you like, well, you know, there's the supply chain and right. also the numbers are actually really great. And no matter how much you said, it seems like people are still bummed. Right. It was two different conversations. Which you can imagine frustrates somebody, too, if they're going and gas prices are high, bread prices are high, and then you go and you hear from a government official say, but wait, the economy is great. Right. They have to figure out a way to have a message that can actually be relayed word of mouth from people. And maybe not call it Bidenomics so <laughs> much. Yeah. Might be because sorry. I don't think but, that message has worked I, I just want to say, I just want to put up, once again, the job numbers, which we got this morning. Uh, 353,000 job num jobs added. I'm old enough to remember covering campaigns where everybody waited for the moment you got the jobs numbers. I'm thinking of uh, the Bush reelect in 2004 and just hoping and praying from the 
point of view of the Bush campaign, I mean, they couldn't even imagine a number like this. Right. And we've been seeing numbers not quite like this, yeah. but the job growth has been pretty consistent across the board for the last couple of years. It's not translating to political support increasing for the president, obviously. And so is that really a reliable metric to look at through the lens of politics anymore? I think we're learning it's not necessarily the case. Also, so much of economic perception is driven through partisanship. Yeah. And so like as we are in this polarized environment, um, it's tough, which is why I think the White House takes heart in the fact that what we were showing before Republicans, independents, and Democrats across party lines are starting to feel a little bit better about the direction. You mentioned the way people perceive the economy is through the lens of partisanship. That has historically very much been the case on the issue of immigration. One of or two of these uh, numbers really stuck out on how people are perceiving immigration. First, first, let's just look at path to legal status. Uh, in 2019, 80%. Now it's down to 38%, excuse me, 68%. Deportation is up 31%. This is all of the respondents, regardless of party. This next set of numbers is really, really key. Look at the question of the Me uh, Mexico border situation in a crisis. Now, 67% of Democrats, that's two-thirds of Democrats, uh, say yes. Independents, also critically important, 77%, and Republicans kind of always thought it was a problem. Uh, this is some, a theme that, that I've been looking at for some months now on how the pendulum uh, really has started to shift to the right. When you look at poll numbers, when you look at members of Congress, and when you look at the White House as well, which I think is responding to that shift uh, in the public. Um, often, you know, what it used to be, even uh, during the Trump era, as you would sometimes hear behind closed doors, Democrats say, hey, we need more border security. We need the standard of asylum to be raised. Uh, we need more money for deep Deportation. That, that is out in the public now. You're really hearing that. You've even seen that with the recent negotiations on the Hill. It's also important to say that as more Democratic mayors and governors uh, start to criticize the White House on this issue, we did start to see the White House as well be more outspoken about the need for enforcement on I this issue. I think they look at these numbers and they realize they've got to be more outspoken. And if you have Democratic mayors criticizing yeah. you daily, it's a problem. Yeah. Absolutely. Everybody stand by. We have brand new reporting coming up. Fresh doubts on the Hill about the impeachment of President Biden. Skepticism is not coming from Democrats right now. It's increasingly coming from the party pushing it. The GOP. New details ahead. It's a jumbled mess. The window to impeach is rapidly closing. I don't think it goes anywhere anywhere. That's what some Republicans in the House are now saying about their own party's push to impeach President Biden. Skepticism is growing within the ranks as their months-long investigation into President Biden seems to be, at least for now, heading down a road to nowhere. CNN's Melanie Zanona joins us live from Capitol Hill with this new reporting. Melanie, you and the rest of our fantastic Hill team, you've interviewed over a dozen Republican lawmakers and aides. What did they tell you? Well, there are serious doubts growing inside the GOP that their months-long investigation into Biden is going to culminate in impeachment. My colleague Annie Greer and I interviewed over a dozen Republicans for this story, including some who are close to the investigation. And what we found is that many Republicans believe at this point they have just not seen the evidence to prove that Biden profited off of his son's foreign business deals. There's also some reluctance to impeach Biden as we get closer to the November election. Their attention has really more 
more shifted to focus on the southern border and impeaching Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. And of course, there's also the perennial problem, it seems, of their razor-thin majority. Just listen to what some of these Republicans told us. Mike Kelly said, I have seen nothing. Dan Newhouse, nobody is talking about that. David Valadeo, I spend zero time on this. And Congresswoman Nicole Malatakis said, let the American people decide in November if they want to take this country in a different direction. I think that's probably most likely considering the politics of the Senate. Now, these dynamics could change. There are a high pair, a high stakes pair of depositions later this month with Hunter and James Biden. That's the president's son and the president's brother. And so committee chairmen say it's just really too early to determine the outcome. They are still committed to pressing ahead and are going to try to really formulate a better communication strategy to the rest of the conference. But as of right now, Dana, Republicans telling us the votes just aren't there yet. Such interesting reporting. Melanie, thank you so much to you and the rest of the team there. Now to a New York Times headline that caught the attention of the former Capitol Hill reporter and me. A sudden media shy speaker can't answer questions. He's on the phone, as the Times notes. Before becoming speaker, Johnson would routinely stop to talk to reporters. Now he's adopted the good old tried and true avoidance strategy. He's suddenly on the phone, seemingly at all times, when he's walking down the hallways of the Capitol with the press around him. It happened on this show on Wednesday when my colleague Manu Raju tried to ask a question. Manu. Speaker Johnson. Speaker Johnson. Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker. Okay. Do you have a second? Okay. He was on the he was on the phone there, Dana. But <laughs> I tried. <laughs> so. On the on the phone. <laughs> I just did air quotes, by the way. Yes. <laughs> we all we all know. Yes. Sometimes he, they're not always on the phone, but it's a he, good way he, to avoid you, which he, is he did, not easy. He, he, to, in in fairness, he did look like he actually okay. was on the phone. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, he is the speaker. He has a lot of people to talk to. Just chooses to do so when he's around reporters. Whether or not there's someone on the line, we'll never know. Um, now, new reporting on a different topic, an important one coming up next week, Donald Trump's legal team and how they're preparing to face the Supreme Court. We've learned that the lead lawyers on both sides of this case to determine whether Trump can appear on the ballot have very little experience arguing before the Supreme Court. They're training right here in D.C. with more experienced lawyers trying to shore up their skills. CNN senior Supreme Court analyst Joan Piskupic is here to give us an inside look on how they're getting ready. Joan. Hi, you know, such high stakes, so much pressure. And you're right, Jason Murray, who's representing the Colorado voters who want to keep Donald Trump off the ballot, has never stood before these justices. And Jonathan Mitchell, who's representing Donald Trump, has argued a few cases, but never before these nine. So both of them lack the experience of the repeat players we often see in very big cases. So how do they get up to speed? Uh, as you mentioned, they've both moved their operations to Washington, D.C., and are tapping into a network of sophisticated lawyers. The main thing they'll be doing, besides you know burrowing down into the issues, is holding dry runs known as moot courts. And for those, uh, the organizers get four or five lawyers who play the role of the nine justices. And this isn't just a practice session, Dana. These are designed for the lawyers, for uh, weaknesses in the cases mm. to surface, to explore those and help the lawyer figure out a way to finesse some weaknesses, strengthen parts, and 
always in the end to try to figure out how to get the justices, no matter what their questions are, to come back to core points on the respective sides of the cases. Yeah, it's equivalent to the murder boards that they do with people who go to Capitol Hill uh, for nomination hearings and others. Is it unusual to have such a big case, Joan, with two lead lawyers, relatively no experience before the Supreme Court? It is. But these two have strengths that I'll mention. First of all, Jason Murray handled the case in lower courts in Colorado and was able to get the ruling by the Colorado Supreme Court that disqualifies Donald Trump from the ballot. You know, we'll have to see what the Supreme mm -hmm. Court does with that ruling. And then Jonathan Mitchell is very well known to these justices. He, you know, is a conservative crusader a former law clerk to Antonin Scalia, uh, who's hmm. the patron saint of conservatives still on the bench. So they each have their strengths. And Jason Murray was also a law clerk uh, to Justice Elena Kagan, who's sitting, and earlier to uh, then just appellate judge Neil Gorsuch, who's now on this court. So they're known to these justices. They just have not argued before these nine, Dana. Joan, thank you so much. So interesting. Appreciate thank it. You, South Carolina is set to deliver Joe Biden his first official primary victory of the 2024 campaign. But does he have the same amount of support from key constituencies like black voters that propelled him to the nomination in 2020? That's coming up. President Biden is ready to claim his first official primary victory tomorrow when South Carolina Democrats go to the polls. The Palmetto State delivered Biden his first win back in 2020 and set him on the path to win the White House. This time, the president isn't facing a competitive primary. Still, a large margin of victory could help jumpstart the president's reelection campaign. And certainly, that's what his folks are looking for. Joining me now is someone who knows a lot about getting a Democratic president elected and reelected. CNN senior political commentator and former senior advisor to President Barack Obama, David Axelrod. So good to see you in person. Always good to see you, Dana. This yeah. is such a treat. Let's talk about South Carolina. Mm -hmm. No real mystery, but what are you looking for when it comes to uh, the vote and how it breaks down? Well, just margin. Mar I think the larger the margin, the better. Uh, turnout, uh, you know, some, uh, some uh, reflection of enthusiasm an affirmation of the president. He did choose South Carolina for a reason. Uh, I think uh, motivation among African-American voters who are a big part of this. Mm -hmm. This is a question uh, going into this election. He's not polling as well as he should be among African-American voters in a race against Trump. Do younger voters participate in this primary? Yeah. So there are things, even though it's a non-competitive primary, there are things that uh, there are benchmarks that you're going to look for. Yeah. And then the question is, because it's not competitive, will they be legit benchmarks? Because yes. it's hard to. Yes. But, but we seize on what we can. Of course. Yes. As we should. Uh, I want to look at another slice of CNN's new polling. And yes. this is a question about age. Yeah. And uh, this is specifically among Democratic, Democratic leaning voters. Yes. Um, concerns. Forty six percent say yes. Yeah, and then you add in uh, some of the other items, their mental sharpness, and there are others that take it really over 50%. This is an astonishing number in a self-volunteered answer, you know, uh, and this is clearly a concern. Listen, we knew this. This, was, this, was, this is an issue. This is a concern that people have, and the question is, um, can he uh, not address it at all? Uh, and, uh, you know, can he just brush it aside with What do jokes? you think? Uh, 
I, I think he, he has to address it. What should he say? I think he should acknowledge people's concerns, but I think there, there are a few points here. Both these guys are old, right? This isn't about their futures, okay? This is about the future of the country and the future of our kids and grandkids. And the really, I think what he wants to focus people on is who's really focused on their future, who's doing things every day uh, motivated by building a better future for their kids and grandkids, and who's consumed by his past mm. and looking backward. And I think that contrast is pretty clear. But I think- so he should lean into that? So I, 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 I think he has to because here's the thing. You know I'm thing. old, but you I- know, you, you, you show these jobs numbers, yeah. for example. I'm of the view that Biden is not getting the credit he deserves because people have made a judgment uh, about his age that leads them to believe that he's not driving things. Hmm. So when good things happen, they don't give him credit. And when bad things happen, they say, because it's because he's not- driving things. And I think you have to sort of almost address it to, re- to, to sort of penetrate that barrier. And, uh, and, you know, he has other strengths that are reflected in this poll. Uh, uh, you know, one is that people think that Trump is uh, too extreme and yeah. they think Biden is mainstream. And there are other things in this poll, but he has to deal with an elephant in the room in order to get a hearing. I want to ask about immigration yeah. because the politics of immigration have changed dramatically since you uh, were in the White House or working on a, a Democratic I saw those numbers, campaign. Yeah. And the, the change is that more and more Democrats are taking voters are taking a hard line. It, it looks as though the White House, the president, is seeing that and kind of following. Yes, two, their two lead. points on this. You know, whatever you think about what Governor Abbott has done, it was diabolically clever because. Uh, by shipping these migrants to cities that call themselves, uh, 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 now I'm forgetting the phrase, but uh, that, that sanctuary, that, city. sanctuary yeah. cities, uh, he has created issue. I come from Chicago. Chicago has been torn apart by this issue. New York has been torn apart by this issue. And suddenly Democrats are engaged in this issue in a different way mm-hmm. than they had been. So that, that has been very effective. I think that the president has responded by engaging in these very difficult negotiations, agreeing to some the, the, the most uh, uh, dramatic uh, measures to deal with the border that we've seen in, in, in a very long time. And now what we see is Donald Trump telling his people, don't agree to that. I don't want Biden's name on the bottom of that bill. That, that will help him. And so that gives the White House an offensive position, which is we're here to try and solve a problem yeah. He wants to exploit it. Uh, he wants to weaponize the problem. We don't have 10 months to wait to, to deal with this problem. I think it's an effective counterpoint. It's, so, it's such a fascinating shift, the way that the former president is handling it and the way that the Democrats in the White House are jumping on it. So we'll yeah. see yeah. how it, how it yeah, plays yeah. out. So good to see you. Always good to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, David. Oh, to be a fly on the wall. E. Jean Carroll's lawyer tells what it was really like behind closed doors during a deposition at Mar-a-Lago. We're going to tell you next. Roberta Kaplan, the lead attorney who helped clinch a whopping $83 million verdict for Trump accuser E. Jean Carroll, is spilling some serious tea on a podcast with George Conway, who introduced Kaplan, by the way, to E. Jean Carroll. Kaplan went into juicy detail about what it was like to depose the former president behind closed doors at Mar-a-Lago. Take a listen. We have a a court reporter, we have a videographer. They're entitled to a lunch break. You're here at Mar-a-Lago. What do you think you're going to do for lunch? Where are you going to get lunch? And so I said to him, well, 
you know, I, I raised this question with your attorneys yesterday, sir, and they graciously offered to provide us with lunch, at which point there was a huge pile of documents, exhibits sitting in front of him, and he took the pile and he just threw it across the table. He looks at me from across the table and he says, see you next Tuesday. You could tell it was like, it was like a kind of a joke, again, like teenage boys would come up with. And my colleagues are like, Robbie, do you know what that means? And I'm like, no, what are you talking about? They tell me, and I'm like, oh, my God, thank God I didn't know, because had I known, I, I for sure would have gotten angry. <laughs> my panel is back uh, with me, David Chalian. You want to take this one? Or, I don't expect you to tell our viewers what see you next Tuesday means. They can probably figure uh, it out. I wasn't going to. I mean, I, <laughs> it's great. Um, it's great color inside the deposition, obviously. I don't think the behavior or the language would surprise anyone that has followed uh, Donald Trump. And obviously, this was an event uh, uh, that he had no desire in engaging on in any way and that obviously gets under his skin, which I think is an important reminder as we go through this year with him as the candidate and all these legal troubles. This does bother Donald Trump. And it really does get him angry that he is under the gun on all this stuff, as you see related in that story. Why does providing lunch get him angry? But it's worth saying, this, if you go down the Google rabbit hole, this is about a female slur against a woman, which he had no problem saying in the room in front of her, like, I just, in the case that he didn't need to be in, if about he had just shut his mouth about a woman, these are the yeah. kinds of things that just, it self-owns for no reason. It may get him angry. I'm glad she didn't understand what that was, with the slur that was being said to her, so she didn't get yeah. angry. But, like, it, it's more raw and more rude than we're Spe- giving it credit speaking for. Speaking of raw, uh, Politico had some, was that a good segue? Great. Politico had... Some uh, quite interesting uh, information about the way that President Biden views his predecessor and now likely competitor. Sick F, blank, blank K, what a effing asshole the guy is. And that's probably on a good day. Yeah, I mean, presidents swear, too. Presidents use profanity as well. And look, President Biden, uh, we've reported, you know, does at times have a short fuse when it comes to discussing policy? And particularly, I don't think I think we all know there's no love lost between uh, the two leaders in this election right now. I mean, uh, language like this almost really leaked or is this (laughs) a way of showing you're a tough guy without being on the record. The most insightful thing in that whole political story is the line that says, the White House had no comment. Yeah. Because they're all too happy to let it be other. He's almost said it publicly, too. He had to to self-edit at one point. But he's almost said it publicly. And yeah, but if you're that, taking the moral high ground in public, then you can't say it, right? Instead, yeah. you do it this Washington way. But I feel like way. his people yeah. want to hear some of that, too, don't you think? Yeah, I think that the anger, the anger they feel can be well used against and Donald Trump. To your point, I mean, there has been criticism that uh, people want to see somebody that attacks, a you know, fighter. the former, the, a, fighter. a fighter. They yeah. want to see strength. And this story, in a way, you can imagine there's aides that say this relays that. All right, everybody, great conversation. (laughs) Certainly ended on an interesting note. Please join me Sunday on State of the Union. Republican presidential hopeful Nikki Haley will be my guest, along with Democratic South Carolina Congressman James Clyburn. I hope to see you this Sunday at 9 a.m. Eastern right here on CNN. Thanks for joining Inside Politics. CNN News Central starts after a quick break.
We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.